Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ask the Professor, a crowd-driven, crowd-sponsored feature where we answer your questions on everything from economics to history to political philosophy and culture, all those things that matter to us in our life together as citizens. And today's question comes from Colin, who says that he dimly recalls from his studies that parliamentary supremacy was the key to our system. And when the Charter was brought in, some of the premiers, concerned that the judiciary was going to become a law unto itself, insisted on inserting the notwithstanding clause, but it seems to him to be a pale imitation of the original arrangement in which Parliament was supreme. And as I enjoy many kinds of questions, I love questions about our Constitution and how it's meant to work, because our Constitution is actually a beautiful thing. not the current constitution, but the constitution order that we inherited from Britain, as did the Americans, that has its roots going back to Magna Carta and beyond. And Colin is right that in the great flowering of liberty in the Anglo-American world in the 19th century, Parliament was supreme in Britain and to a large degree in Canada. I mean, the British North America Act after 1867 did set limits on the subjects on which Parliament could legislate, but within its area of competence, Parliament could do just about anything. As Albert Van Dicey said, if Parliament were to decree that blue-eyed babies could not live, although it would be a monstrous law and the public would never accept it, there'd be no constitutional barrier to passing it. And people like Dicey were confident, partly based on experience, that leaving power more or less unchecked in the hands of the people's representatives, because the legislature is the only branch of the government that is directly chosen by the people in Canada and in Britain and elsewhere, though not in the United States, of course. At some levels, judges are chosen. And Americans also elect their chief executives, which we don't do. But they were confident, based on what had happened over the course of the 19th century, that there was no real danger there. But it turns out that there was a danger, because ambitious men and then women realized if Parliament can do anything, then whoever controls Parliament can do anything. And that's how we got this system of strong political parties, of whipping MPs, of reducing them to colored tiles across which one steps to the executive mansion, to the premiership, to the prime ministership. And although it took a long time for public habits of wanting limited government to erode, there was no institutional barrier to their eroding in the 19th century. But here's where, Colin, we need to go a bit further back in time. Because the 19th century system was not, in fact, really the essence of the British system at all. What you have, if you look all the way back to Magna Carta, when you don't even have a legislature, you have a foundational document that lays out the traditional rights of the English. Magna Carta was not an innovation. It was an attempt to preserve liberty that was being threatened by bad King John. And Magna Carta says there are things that the government cannot do. This is we the people speaking clearly and distinctly. And Parliament evolves fairly quickly after Magna Carta. You get parliaments with the common people represented by 1265. That's just 50 years after John first seals Magna Carta at Runnymede. And the purpose of parliaments in those days was to ensure that the other branches, especially the executive, didn't ignore the liberties that were later in Magna Carta. The job of the legislature was not to govern, it was not to make new and exciting rules and have some dazzling new program that the king should implement. It was to make sure the king didn't have some dazzling new program because things were pretty much fine the way they were. And that system, which we talk about in our constitutional trilogy, the Magna Carta, our 
shared legacy of liberty, and then true, strong, and free, fixing Canada's constitution, and then a right to arms. This system worked for hundreds of years. It was repeatedly attacked by the executive, but the attacks were always fought off. And finally, it became clear by the 18th century that it was not possible to break the legislature, that kings who tried would get deposed or, in the case of Charles I, beheaded. But people became too complacent about power in the hands of the legislature, and they allowed the system to become unbalanced. So the Americans at the time of their revolution, created their constitution with its separation of powers and the balance between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. They were not innovating. They were trying to preserve the traditional British system. They were very explicit about this. They were trying to preserve the traditional British system that they thought was being overwhelmed by the executive in the 18th century and that would ultimately be overwhelmed by the executive through Parliament in the 20th. That doesn't mean the Americans at the moment have much better government than we do. If you allow government to get too big, it becomes callous, unresponsive, unaffordable, and distant. There's just no way around that. In many ways, what's gone wrong with the parliamentary system is that we asked too much of government, failing to understand that it was incompatible with our traditional liberties. Nevertheless, my answer to Colin's question, and I hope for more you will watch the Constitutional Trilogy if you have not already done so, they're all available free on my website. That's www.johnrobson.ca. The Documentaries tab takes you to the YouTube versions. And they will show you how this wonderfully balanced system dedicated to limiting the presumption of the state to protect the freedom of the people was threatened to tip this way, tip that way, and apparently achieved its finest balance in the 19th century only to succumb rather dangerously to the great weakness that comes when one branch dominates all the others. It's the one that attracts the attention of the ambitious. And that is a dangerous thing for a free people. And I say the documentaries are all available free on YouTube, but they're also all crowdfunded. So if you watch them and like them, or indeed if you're watching Ask the Professor and enjoying it, please visit my website, click here, and make a contribution to sustain my work. And since Ask the Professor is driven by your questions as well as by your contributions, if you do have a question you'd like to see addressed, click here, and it will take you to the form you need to use to submit a question. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.